0: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm J.P. Tasker, and this is the Power & Politics Podcast for Wednesday, November 8th. On the pod today, the Rafa border crossing is closed, delaying the safe evacuation of hundreds of Canadians and their families. The U.S. State Department says it is due to an unspecified security circumstance. We speak to a spokesperson for the State Department about the Israel-Hamas war. And... Ukraine enters a second winter fighting Russia. Does the country fear it has become the forgotten war? We'll speak to Ukraine's ambassador to Canada. Plus, here at home, tempers flare in the House of Commons over the federal carbon tax. The Liberal government is refusing to give any more exemptions. The power panel is here to weigh in on how political pressures could force Ottawa's hand. We begin overseas, where G7 foreign leaders are unanimously calling for a humanitarian pause in the Israel-Hamas war. They stomp short once again of demanding a ceasefire that includes canada the head of the united nations has repeatedly said a ceasefire is urgently needed here he is speaking
1: earlier today every year the highest number of killing of children by any of the actors in all the conflicts that uh, we witness is the maximum in the hundreds we have in a few days in gaza thousands and thousands of children killed which means there is also something clearly wrong in the way um, military operations are being run.
0: Nathan Tech is the U.S. State Department Deputy Spokesperson. Mr. Tech, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, like officials here in Canada, has been calling for a series of humanitarian pauses in the Israel-Gaza conflict to get aid in and to get some people out. Is there any chance of that happening, given what we're seeing on the ground right now? Is a pause even feasible?
2: So this is, of course, uh, an ongoing conversation that we are having with the Israelis, and I think it's important for folks to just keep in mind that humanitarian pauses are actually nothing new in this conflict. We did see pauses in military operations to allow, for example, around 600 trucks of humanitarian assistance to enter Gaza uh, through the Rafah crossing, and we did see pauses in military operations to allow hostages to get out uh, as well. Uh, So we're going to continue to have conversations with the Israelis on on this very important issue. Uh, This is not... uh, this did not sort of stop when the secretary left the region uh our teams are sort of in still in in touch about this issue and uh, the israelis have raised important questions and we're working through those questions with them what questions have they raised I'm just not going to be able to get into the sort of details of our private conversations. But rest assured, this is an ongoing dialogue and conversation with the Israelis.
0: What can you tell me about the hostages? We know roughly 240 were taken, at least one Canadian. We're at the one month mark now, sir. Has there been any progress to secure their freedom? What do you know about that?
2: So we are continuing to uh, exert every single effort we can to secure the release of uh, the hostages, especially, of course, the American uh, hostages. And uh, unfortunately, in order to preserve the success uh, of those efforts, I just I'm not able to get into too much detail at this point. But uh, these efforts are ongoing uh, and we're going to continue to give them the absolute focus that they deserve.
0: Does it look promising at least? Can you tell us if there are some early indications that some folks might be able to be released?
2: I'm just not in a position to characterize our efforts uh, on this if or effort or give a sort of a trend line at this point. But the, uh, this is something that we, we uh, take very seriously and we're exerting every effort uh, uh, to do so.
0: Prime Minister Netanyahu said yesterday Israel will take responsibility for security in Gaza for a, quote, indefinite period once Israeli forces have subdued Hamas. Is this something the U.S. supports? Should there be a long-term Israeli presence in Gaza?
2: Well, uh, you know, our policy on this actually has has not changed. We uh, continue to be of the view that it is of course not sustainable for Israel to engage in a long-term occupation of Gaza. And quite frankly, we we don't see actually that much daylight between our position and the Israeli position. Uh, And so uh, uh, ultimately, of course, what we want to see is a situation in which Gaza can never again be used as a platform for a terrorist organization like Hamas to launch attacks against Israeli civilians. uh, And of course, in which uh, 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 There is some sort of vision for unified Palestinian authority governance across Gaza and the West Bank, uh, in which there is no forced uh, relocation of Palestinian civilians. uh, And uh, over the very long term, of course, the conditions are set for a path to a two-state solution.
0: But it does seem President Netanyahu is suggesting there will be some sort of, you know, semi-permanent control of Gaza after this conflict. Is that something that President Biden would support?
2: Uh, So I'm just not going to get speaking on behalf of another government's comments. Uh, Our view continues to be that we are uh, uh, continue to uh, it is our continues to be our policy that we do not support uh, Israeli uh, sort of occupation or long term control of the Gaza Strip. uh, And uh, we will continue to uh, do everything we can to ensure that Israel is able to uh, do everything it can to defeat Hamas uh, in the outset and that the conditions are set in the long term for a sustainable peace.
0: And the U.S. has made it clear to Netanyahu that they would not support a reoccupation. Is that how I'm reading your comments?
2: So uh, we both we and the Israelis have been clear that uh, this is not a scenario that will take
0: place. I know you don't necessarily do domestic politics at the State Department, but there is growing criticism within the president's own party on how the U.S. is handling this conflict. We heard from Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan. She's saying, you know, Joe Biden is supporting Palestinian genocide with uh, his current outlook on Israel. What do you make of those claims that are circulating?
2: Well, look. In the United States, just like in Canada, it's, we have a vibrant democracy in which uh, individuals are able to express their views, uh, and, and we have a wide variety of means for people to do to do so. Uh, as you noted, I, I don't do politics here at the State Department. Uh, we will continue to uh, continue to implement the foreign policy of the United States based on our our long term national security interests and our commitments to our friends and allies around the
0: world. But do you not consider popular support? Because it's not just Ms. Talib. You know, there was a recent Associated Press poll out that found 40% of Americans surveyed think Israel's military response in Gaza has gone too far. So what's, your, what's the administration's message to Americans who are maybe feeling a little uneasy about the state of affairs in the region?
2: Look, uh, of course, we uh, don't develop our foreign policy based on polls, which of course can shift and uh, change. Uh, what we do take into account is the fact that we have made a commitment to Israel to its right to defend itself, to its right to exist. Israel cannot tolerate the kind of terrorist attack that took place on October 7th. Uh, and we will continue to provide Israel with what it needs to do, what it takes uh, to defeat and degrade uh, Hamas, uh, and uh, we will continue to stand by a friend and an ally. This is vital for american credibility uh this is vital uh to send that message uh that we stand with our friends
0: are you concerned that this conflict could spiral further out of control and destabilize the entire region is there is there any role for western countries in trying to pull this back from the brink
2: Certainly it is a an important priority for us that this con- conflict does not in fact spiral uh, throughout the region uh, and the Secretary has made several trips uh, to the region over the past few months to work with allies and partners uh, to ensure that does not happen uh, of course uh, our message has been clear to any entity uh thinking about uh entering the fray thinking about exploiting uh this current moment uh, uh and to sort of open a new front against israel is that they simply should not do so uh we have taken uh measures to uh, deter uh such actions uh, for example moving aircraft carriers into the eastern mediterranean uh and we will continue to uh, uh send that message both publicly and privately uh to any others thinking about entering the fray that they should not
0: okay we'll leave it there thank you nathan tech u.s state department deputy spokesperson appreciate your time thank you the gates are closed today at the gaza egyptian border the names of 40 canadians and their families were on a list of people to be approved to evacuate through the rafa crossing but they're stuck waiting at least another day cbc news did speak out to some of the people who are waiting to leave the war zone have a listen to what we heard from them
3: So sad because I leave my family there in Gaza. Happy because I I take my daughter from war. I don't know.
4: We slept on a bed for the first time since a month now. This is the first time since a month that we have a room for us, for our daughters, and a shower. I came out of Gaza
5: with exactly 300 U.S. dollars. And everything else got completely destroyed. Completely. I have nothing left
1: to go back to.
3: It was like a hell at night. It's frightening. It's like I hug my kids and close their ears and try to get them to sleep without noticing what's going on. When they go outside and they see the whole destroyed house, they said, what's going on, Mama? Why all this building like falling down? I said, Mama, there is an earthquake. And since then, they do not understand what's going on with them.
0: The U.S. State Department says the Rafa border crossing was closed today for a security circumstance. The first group of Canadians left just yesterday. Global Affairs Canada confirmed that 75 Canadians and family members were part of that group. But some Canadians stuck in Gaza are still waiting for their chance to leave. Sami Saleem is one of those Canadians. His daughter Dalia Saleem joins us now. Thanks for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: So you were hopeful that today your dad would get out of Gaza. The list came out and his name wasn't on it. How are you feeling today?
5: Another day, um, another disappointment. Um, His name wasn't on it. Only 40 Canadians made it to today's list. And then we later found out during the day that not only was it 40 Canadians, nobody made it out of the border today. Uh, I was also disappointed to find out uh at night when the list came out keep in mind these lists come out around 1 a.m our time around 2 a.m so we don't sleep we stay up around the clock waiting for these lists to come out hoping that his name is on it the list came out it's our disappointment the first thing we realized okay there's 40 canadians on it and then we realize every other country has somehow 100 and something of its citizens on the list. One of the countries had 370 of its citizens on the list. That's close to Canada's number of citizens stuck in Gaza. Had they been able to get their names on one or two days, all the Canadians would have been out by now.
0: Yeah, and we know the United States, for example, has released or helped release nearly 400 of its citizens. Canada, a lot less than that. What's your message to the federal government as they try to manage the situation?
5: Uh, I've lost confidence. Uh, I've lost confidence in. A bit. I've tried everything. I we call on a daily basis. We email. We are sending petitions. We are. I'm speaking to supervisors. I don't know what is the what is all the delay about. Like, I know Canada has in the past in other war zones. You know they've had a good crisis management system of getting the Canadians out of war, foreign countries, um, and let's speak about this war, Canada has very quickly managed to get the Canadians out of Israel within one week of the war. They were sending charter flights every day and and, um, getting, you know, the citizens out of Israel. It's been over 31 or two days now. Nothing's been done. The border has been open for over a week. Some days it opens, some days it closes. Yesterday was the first time Canadians made it to an evacuation list. 80 only were able to leave out of the 450 other nations seem to be getting their citizens in a much bigger uh, you know capacity out. What is Canada's lacking? I don't know if it's a, a power problem. I have no idea if it's their system. I've had a, I'm tired of the double standard. like I, I, Canada needs to step up um, and help the families get out.
0: Yeah, Rob Olyphant, who's the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, he's responsible for consular services. He was out today saying, it's just extremely complicated. It's really hard to get people out. Are you buying that?
5: No, not at all. If it's complicated, uh, Japan has managed to get out lots of citizens. Mexico, the United States, France, UK. I could name all the, you know, the nations on those lists. They've, been, they've started since last week. What I have not yet, until now, have received uh, a clear uh, response on the reason for the delays. Today, 40. 40 were on the list uh, compared to hundreds. So, no, uh, there is no transparency in their response and in their um, messaging to us.
0: And the news, as you say, is constantly changing. These lists comes out, uh, you know, in the middle of the night. Uh, we found out kind of last minute that the border was going to be closed again today to for to some foreign nationals, at least to some of the Canadians who are trying to get out. It's closed now; there won't be any more for for this day, Wednesday. Are you having trouble reaching out to your father? I imagine communicating with him is so difficult right now.
5: We, the only way I can um, reach my father is literally through a, fo- a game of telephone. Um, so, for some reason, he seemed to have lost complete reception the area he's in it's uh mostly vacant uh, farms it's uh mostly olive trees so but there's someone nearby that we found out still has a good reception so we call him and then if it's during daylight he can walk over into my dad and give him the message if it's day if it's nighttime we won't let him risk his life because anybody who you know walks at night is uh could risk their life of being bombed or shot at um so yesterday i had tried to reach out to him. When the list came out at 2 a.m., we tried to get in contact with this person and tell him, please make sure my dad doesn't leave because I was informed before that my dad would be on the second day of evacuation. And I had the night before called and said, make sure you get to the border. I know it's a very dangerous trip. And by the way, Canada has done nothing to ensure the safety of any Canadians that are making the trip to the border, we've asked for assistance through the Red Cross. We've asked for assistance through the UN. My dad's going to have to make it on his own through a taxi uh, ride, which is so risky because everybody is, a, uh, you know, everybody is a threat at this point to them. They've been shooting at cars. They've been shooting at, you know, and it's, uh, bombs are over their heads all the time. It's very risky, and we've asked for some sort of support in just getting them assisting you know, assisting them get safely to the border. And we've been told this is not something they can assist with.
0: Yeah. I mean, your father,
6: to
5: me, you know,
0: yeah, your father's staying in a tent right now, I believe right in a, in a vacant parking lot in Southern Gaza, but it's not all that close to Rafa. It would be quite a dangerous journey for him to go from where he is now to, to a potential point of safety.
5: It's very dangerous. It's it, So that's why I was stressing last night to make sure he doesn't go to the border because, he could be risking his life for nothing. He could be stranded there for hours. And then when he gets there, he'll find out hours later, his name is not on the list and then make the journey back. I didn't want to risk that. So we, and it, and it takes about 10 times or 20 times to get to do, through the phones. So we called this person and we said like, please, it was 7am um, there. And we said, make sure he doesn't leave. And, he, and the guy was like, oh, I, I think he's about to leave. And Anyways, we found out later that he didn't end up going. We called after we made sure he didn't go because I'm. It's just a. It's a risk, and it would have been for nothing.
0: And this is not the first time you've had to deal with something like this, right? I believe some family members of yours have been stuck in Gaza in the past. Your husband in 2008, your brother in 2014, during other times of intensified conflict. How does this compare this time?
5: Um. It was always a hit and miss. The process. It was always. Canada, unfortunately, has always been one of the late countries to respond, but it was a bit easier because they were, they were leaving through um, a border that was connected directly with Israel. So I guess Canada had more say in that or had more power and now uh, getting citizens out. This one is much more complicated, and the messaging is just very chaotic, and the system is not very um, supportive.
0: And let's end on what your message is to the federal government, if you can... Reach them right now. What is your message to the minister who is helping to coordinate all this?
5: Um, uh, Please bring Canadians home. Uh, Stop with the double standard. Canadians in Gaza are just as important as any other Canadian in any part of the world. We've seen your response to other countries that have, you know, been through wars. We've seen your response in Ukraine. It was very quick. You made sure that you brought... Canadians back with their spouses and their kids and their, and their parents we're not getting any of that with, with the Palestinians stuck, uh, or, or the Palestinian Canadians stuck in Gaza what is it different, what is, I just find it it's not fair, and it doesn't feel right and it actually, it hurts it, it, it just, it bothers me and, um, and until now I haven't received one clear answer on when my dad could be on that list you know, where right now it's just open in the air I have, family mem- I have friends here who have been told that their family members will be on tomorrow's list. So they have an answer, and here we are waiting for my dad to be on any day, which he hasn't even been assigned a day. So my, my messaging is, please get your work in order and make sure to bring these Canadians home.
0: Okay, let's leave it there. Dahlia Celine. thank you so much for your time today, and please keep us posted on your dad. Thank you. Thank you. We are now more than 600 days into Russia's war on Ukraine. Ukraine's spring counteroffensive has achieved minor territorial gains while Russia continues to bombard Ukrainian cities and blockade its ports. Meanwhile, just today, the European Commission has recommended that formal EU membership negotiations should begin with Ukraine, bringing some hope that the deadlock in the war may change. But with a war in the Middle East, President Zelensky rallies to keep up attention for Ukraine. We'll see, we'll try to show the result this year. And for us, it's very important because we lose people each day. Of course, it's, it's difficult when you have now the war on the Middle East and nobody knows when it will finish and
5: nobody knows the result of this tragedy.
0: I'm joined by Ukrainian Ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. I want to talk to you about morale. You know, we are 600 days into this conflict. Uh, The top general of your country just said recently there is no beautiful breakthrough imminent and that there is really an issue with declining morale in the country. Where does this war stand right now?
3: You know that since the very first day of Russian invasion, Ukrainians showed enormous courage and dedication to protect the country. And this courage is with us. If you look on the polls in Ukraine, Ukrainians, despite all the horror of the war, despite all the Children, women, men, lives lost on this war. Majority of Ukrainians, the high majority of Ukrainians, are not ready to compromise. And why we are saying that? And what is that this is the core spirit of Ukrainians? Because we saw the ceasefire in 2014-15 Minsk agreement. Unfortunately, we know that Russia will use this time to regroup, to produce more weapons. And if you ask Ukrainians uh, what their motivation to fight the war, they will, uh, they will say you the answer. Because we don't want our children to fight another war. We, we are ready to sacrifice our lives. And we are ready to protect, actually, the eastern uh, NATO flank. But the only thing we need is the military support. And of course, with the war in the Middle East, uh, it's not about the attention. It's just we are very pragmatical now. Uh, understanding that the achievements on the battlefield is also linked to the steadily supply of the artillery, of the armored vehicles, of the additional air defense, now with the fighter jets. And, of course, as there is a more demand for just for the weapons, for the artillery, uh, it's the issue that... We call and we advocate with all our partners to address because the production in defense sector need to be ramped up.
0: There was a recent report that U.S. and European officials have quietly begun talking to the Ukrainian government about a possible peace negotiation. Is that true? Is that something that Ukraine is open to? Is there some sort of negotiated end to this?
3: No, no negotiations. And as I've said to you, and I think you know, and President said. very openly and directly Ukrainian uh, have the scope and actually Ukraine presented the scope which is the peace formula of President Zelensky and there is an important point there the restoration of territorial integrity, sovereignty of Ukraine Russian troops need to get out of Ukrainian territory all prisoners of war need to be released Russia need to pay all the damages all Ukrainian children, over 19,000 of Ukrainian children illegally adopted, and probably many of the people saw the horrifying testimony of, of Ukrainian children who went through illegal um, abduction in Russia uh, in the Parliament in the House of Commons this week. This is what we are fighting for. This is for the prerequisite for the peace.
0: So this can only end on the battlefield. Yeah. Speaking of the battlefield, you know, there is concern because the United States has essentially shut off funding. I think John Kirby, a spokesperson for the president, said today nearly 96% of U.S. funds so far have been used by Ukraine. Of course, there's not really an imminent bill in the U.S. Congress to renew that funding. Is there a concern that you run out of money from, f- from foreign partners? And what about equipment? What more do you need? And, and how are you being hampered by not having access to cash?
3: Uh, there are two possible... On helping us to defend ourselves. First of all, uh, let's be also clear that support of Ukraine is the investment of the NATO security. And I think the the more we realize and hear like and Russian pa- patterns, not only uh, was there illegal invasion in Ukraine, but we also Hamas delegation coming to Moscow, which I think is a very clear signal for everybody uh, to watch. Uh, and of course we rely on the support of our partners both US Canada EU but also in ourselves Ukraine start uh, investments and joint ventures with the major defense companies from the world to produce and to, to start the production of uh, the weapon systems in Ukraine that's also important to build the Uh, stability inside the country for the military support and to be able also to produce ourselves and this will start with one of the biggest defense company Rheinmetall and the uh, the agreement has already been signed there are many more not many of them are public but Ukraine is now also significantly investing our own resources to be able to partly but supply uh, our own produced weapons But, of course, we still need the support.
0: You mentioned Hamas going to Russia and what that tells us about the regime in Moscow. But is there a concern coming from your country and the people that lead it that the war in the Middle East right now is overshadowing your conflict and what you need from Western partners to win?
3: I think what's really... We need all to be scared. The horrific pictures of killing innocent women, children innocent youth can't become a normality in this world. Russia started that in Ukraine, in Bucha, in Irpin and it's kind of now kind of a cancer. It's spreading the world and I think what we need to realize that impunity for these crimes will create another crimes. So that's why winning this war and bringing Russia to justice is so much important for Preventing this this kind of the crimes, and that I think the the core we we all need to care.
0: Ukraine's path to membership in the European Union is looking more likely. We heard from uh, Ursula von der Leyen, who's the commissioner of the European Union today. She said that completing our union is the call of history. How could the EU membership alter this dynamic? How could that help with the fight?
3: Of course, like this, I think this is a. Uh, a very important like, signal, the country who was in the middle of the war, the biggest war on the European continent since the Second World War, despite the war, is not only fighting the war, is not only helping the economy to survive, but also is committing and implementing a huge number of institutional changes and the reforms for us as a democratic country high majority of Ukrainians supported EU integration. That was the major, uh, you know, call for people back in 2013 when young Ukrainian generation went to protest uh, against pro-Russian president. And this was what is dr- driving the country. And actually, this is one of the biggest threats for Putin because successful Ukraine being an EU and NATO member It's a really huge huge challenge to Putin himself and his regime and that is also important for Ukraine and I think it's also very important to all of our partners understanding that Ukraine is working on so many different fronts, both fighting the war and being able to provide those crucial reforms including the judicial system, including the rule of law despite the war so i think it's very if you started your question was uh, was the um uh, comment on morale this is i think the brightest demonstration of morale of ukrainian people we are working each and every on different funds but every part of this is to support ukraine's victory
0: okay well we'll keep an eye on that we'll see what happens thank, thank you so me. much ambassador Yulia Kovalev Thank you so much for joining us and bringing us the latest from Ukraine. We hope to have you back soon. Thank you. The debate over taxes on home heating was front and center in the House again today.
4: All ten premiers,
0: Conservative,
4: Liberal, and NDP, are calling for him to take the tax off so Canadians will keep the heat on. We put forward a plan
0: to help Canadians with
4: their home heating bill, but climate... Delay Liberals and climate deny
7: Conservatives will back the profits of big oil again. It was with uh, confusion and consternation that I uh, noted uh, the way the NDP voted with the Conservatives against one of the most successful measures Canada has ever
4: seen in the fight against climate change. It's almost tragic and heartbreaking to see these two squabbling in this way. (laughs)
0: This time, MP sadly defeated a non-binding NDP motion calling on the government to remove the GST from all forms of home heating, make eco-energy retrofits and heat pumps free for low-income and middle-class Canadians, and to pay for those provisions with tax excess to, by taxing excess pro- profits on big oil and gas corporations. How will the politics around the climate versus affordability debate play out? It's time to bring in the power panel. Amanda Alvaro is a political commentator. And here with me, Jordan Likness is the Canadian program manager for the Frederick Ebert Foundation. Tim Powers is the chair of Suma Strategies. And Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reed Institute. So Jordan, I'm going to start with you. You heard the Prime Minister's point there that maybe the NDP's position on climate has become difficult to decipher. That there might not be a lot of consistency to it. Because one day they're saying they're going to back the Conservative motion to lift the carbon tax on home heating. The next day they're saying they're climate warriors. Do you think that they've kind of backed themselves into a corner here? Like, what does the NDP believe when it comes to climate? It's hard well, to say.
7: Well, I think the only confusion and consternation that's happened around climate over the last couple of weeks has come from the Prime Minister's decision here. And, you know, the NDP put forward something I think that was very clear in terms of their commitment to achieving emissions reductions, uh, which, by the way, would be more than the Liberals have managed to do with their plan, but they're not going to do it on the backs of consumers. And this has actually been something that's pretty consistent for the NDP. You know, I remember reaching back to... Like 2008, you know, Jack Layton was out there talking about removing the GST off home heating. So that's not a new ask for them. And I think it makes sense in this context, because it's there's a lot more regional fairness to it when you compare it to what the Liberals have put forward, because that's going to benefit every Canadian. And we know that home heating is not a luxury. This is something people have to do. And so if we want to give people a break, uh, as folks are struggling to make ends meet, I think this is a pretty sensible way to go about it. And I don't think it takes anything away from their commitment on climate issues
0: amanda is the carbon tax dead because we've seen these car votes there's another car vote potentially coming in the senate and yet we still see the government's record on climate change and reducing emissions isn't all that great i mean is there something to be said for the carbon tax or should we just kiss it goodbye and think of something else to fight climate change
8: well wouldn't that be easy if we just scrapped everything that the conservatives say we should scrap but You know, it was interesting. We started talking about this last week, um, Polyev's framing of it becoming a carbon tax election, the next election being a carbon tax election, you have to wonder if this really could be the ballot box issue. And framing is everything. And certainly at a time when Canadians are feeling the crunch more than ever, um, and then it's a cooler time of year, and those temperatures are continuing to drop, and people are thinking about heating their homes, it's, it's very easy to make that affordability versus sustainability argument. Can you make that roll all the way to the next election? Uh, I don't know I don't think so this was a cornerstone of the election platform for the Liberals it's something that Canadians voted on it's something that Canadians feel strongly about uh, it is a rebate system and I think that unfortunately the Liberals have had a hard time on the communications mm. of this file because it's you know it's certainly about emissions reduction and looking at uh, climate change but it's also about affordability this is um, you know this is about putting dollars back into Canadians pockets while at the same time dealing with this very Real crisis that's in front of us but the plot is being lost a little bit certainly in the affordability argument and like I said last week I think the conservatives have done a better job of changing the frame on this one.
0: So actually, it's funny, Amanda says it's messaging. I was listening to the U.S. election coverage last night and they were re- interviewing a Republican presidential candidate and he was asked about the abortion defeats because the, everything that was on the ballot related to abortion went down to defeat last night. And he said the same thing that she's saying. Well, it's not about abortion, it's really about how we've sold it. It's about the messaging, that we haven't really communicated well what conservatives want to do on abortion. Do you think, what are you hearing from people when you poll them? Do people generally support a carbon tax? Are they confused about what the tax is? Do they just need to hear it better from the lips of the Prime Minister? Like, where do they stand on this program?
9: So many things! (laughs) (laughs) So... First of all, in terms of the base that traditionally votes either for this government or for the NDP, which makes up enough for that confidence and supply agreement, plus block voters, they are generally, yes, supportive of, uh, in favor of, willing to pay for carbon pricing. And it has been that way for a long time. Now, how much, in what context, and certainly against the backdrop of a cost of living crisis, we've seen going back to 2017, 2018, 2019, climate change being the top and driving issue in terms of what do you care most about in this country today? What's the Mm -hmm. issue that's got the most resonance resonance for you? It's dropped all the way. Uh, We Mm -hmm. haven't seen it anywhere in the top three since the pandemic. And so when you get to that tension point, uh, what is in my wallet versus what is perceived to be in the government's wallet in the name of climate change or change behavior with the amount of confusion over what people think they are getting or don't know that they're getting or don't know that they're eligible for around a rebate. You know if 80% of Canadians were actually aware that they are eligible for that rebate, then this, this would perhaps not have blown up the way it is. So this is a communications issue, absolutely, on part of this government. But look, it's also an economy, a, a household economy, what can I afford versus what is my goal issue. And it's also one that really speaks to now uh, the door that the Liberals have opened up around regional disparity uh, so Atlantic Canada gets a carve out. Where's my carve out in this part of the province or that part of the mm-hmm. province? And uh, and you know, Tim knows when I talk about this. We haven't had a juicy regional <laughs> fight on on regional <laughs> politics in a while. So bring
0: it on. Yeah. Eh? What I didn't realize it had slipped that far down the list of priorities.
9: Like, it's not change. out of the top ten, right. but it's not in the top three.
0: Yeah, I mean, what a change, really. Yeah. In the 2019 election, it was probably close to the top, right? It That's was. when the Green Party had, you know, probably their best vote share. We Well, I don't know. I want to say they won't get any better than that, but they certainly performed very well in that election because climate was so front and center. And that brings me to you, dear Tim Powers. Um, Well, you look very good tonight, young David Cochran, so thank you. (laughs) I don't know where to look. I feel very awkward. Okay, well, I mean, I think, you know, Paul has got a victory on this one, right? I mean, because he introduced this motion last week, it certainly stirred up a lot of Mm -hmm. conversation about the carbon tax. And then Goody Hutchings obviously didn't help things by saying, oh, if you voted liberal, you might get a better deal. But... Is it not incumbent on Polyev at some point to come out with some sort of climate plan? Like, can he just criticize the government and say, oh, you're all wrong about this? Does he not have to at some point say, this is what we will do beyond just the sloganeering, beyond just saying technology, not taxes?
4: No, if I wanted to give you a good conservative answer to this, I'd do the Ken McDonald and maybe go like that. (laughs) But I won't do that, because that wasn't appropriate in Parliament, not appropriate here now. I think, look, the the good opposition politics for... uh, Polyev right now, J.P., is to not interrupt his political enemy while that enemy is in the process of making multiple mistakes. Absolutely, at some point in time, Pierre Polyev is going to have to speak to, the conservatives are going to have to speak to climate policy, but that time isn't now um, and arguably there's a little back and forth in parliament but that's getting a little little bit silly i tell you what was the most interesting thing there today and it's the thing i'm watching most around all of this is what is Stephen Guibault going to do in the clip you played as the prime minister was challenging pierre polyev on his bona fides mister Guibault didn't look very happy mm. in his comments on monday i think it was after the vote it was pretty clear and that he's at a line when he said If I am still Environment Minister, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something to that Mm. effect, there will be no more carve-outs. The Prime Minister Arguably, right now, has the most at risk here. And so, why would Polyev give him ammunition and coming forward with a plan right now as Trudeau is struggling a little bit with his uh, credibility and bona fides on climate among many of his key supporting groups?
0: Jordan, do you think? I asked Amanda earlier if the carbon tax is dead. You know, do you think that it's headed? Like, do you think we're going to scrap this thing? Because we've had the carve-out now for Atlantic Canada, predominantly, but all people across the country use home heating oil as well, of course. We have, before the Senate now, this bill to make exceptions for farmers so that they do not have to pay the carbon tax on fuel they use to dry their grain, for example, and heat their barns. That's a substantial source of emissions in this country. Um, You know, at this point, it seems like everybody is going to try and get the carbon tax you know, knocked off for their little pet project, right? It could be headed in that direction. Do you see that... Playing out like what is the future of the
7: carbon? Sure, I, I think it's a risk, but I but I also think we have to be careful to overstate, you know, or not to overstate what what's happening. So there's obviously the consumer side carbon price, which is primarily what we're talking about here. But then there's also an industrial carbon price mm-hmm. that that covers a large amount of emissions in Canada, and that has remained really relatively untouched. Um, there are other issues with it. There are carbons that have been given that are problematic, um, and and you know should be changed by the Liberal government, but. Really, when we're talking about the consumer carbon price, I think I think we have to understand that there, it still applies a lot of places. And the one that people will most commonly know of, of course, is gasoline, right? Mm-hmm, and no yeah. one's really seriously talking about removing that, except um, except of course the conservative leader. But what? The problem that the prime minister has is a political one. Here, he's stuck between his environment minister and his Atlantic caucus, and he's admitted he's given away the he's he's conceded the argument that this is that this tax is an affordability issue for people. And so, once you do that, it's like pulling at a thread, and this is going to unravel further. And I think there's no question about that. Now, can you contain it to limits on home heating? Maybe if you take some quick action and kind of put some guardrails around that, you might be able to do that. Make a regional equity argument. Um, But really the thing that if, if we want to be serious about tackling emissions, it also means investments in changing how people heat their homes and how energy efficient their homes are. And I think what this whole discussion has also revealed is that we have major gaps in the programs that exist for that today. Most low income people can't access them and even those who do have the money are having trouble qualifying. So we have to do better on that.
0: Amanda, I think a lot of people at home would understand why the government is pursuing this policy of putting a pause on the carbon tax for home heating oil. It is two to four times more expensive. Why does you know a senior in Bonavista, Newfoundland and Labrador, have to pay exorbitant prices when there's no alternative to home eating oil? Like, is she really going to have that big of an impact on climate change and emissions in the country's trajectory? No, probably not. But what people don't get necessarily is the political angle of this. They get the policy approach, but they don't understand maybe how the government decided that it was okay to do this and really benefit predominantly one part of the country and not foresee there being criticism from other energy consumers? How did the government not anticipate this? Well, and
8: again, I sound a bit like a broken record, but I think part of this was more of a communications challenge than it was a a policy issue. This was a sensible policy. Home heating oil is more polluting, it's more expensive, it disproportionately affects lower income Canadians, and it's not just in Atlantic Canada. 40% 40% of users are in Quebec, 20% are in the West. Like there's there is uh, there is it's across the country, it affects homes across the country. Does it affect more homes in Atlantic Canada? Yes, but I think the problem was that it came out as an Atlantic Canada carve out and it didn't recognize that there was this distribution across the country, or certainly the communication failed. To deliver that message that was key i do however think and i and i said this last week believe that every time you make a carve out you do make a concession or you're seen to be making concession jordan just made this point i agree with it when you take a plank that is the cornerstone the key uh, a key cornerstone plank of the election platform which the governments were this government was first elected and you start carving it out, even if it's sensible policy, it sends a message that this really is an affordability issue. And I agree, it does become a bit like a thread that you start to pull and you're seeing that in the house, but where does it end? And so I do think that the government has put themselves a little bit in a corner on this one and they have to now dig themselves out.
0: Yes, yeah, actually, I mean, we're looking at the government's numbers and polls. Depending on which one you look at, it varies. Yeah, none of them
9: are very good for the standards. None of them are good. Not like moment. Like 14,
0: 15, 16 points down. I mean, you take your pick. But it looks bad, double digits at least, we could probably say, based on the things that we've seen so far. Is there a way to turn this around? Like, is there is there something they can do on climate and affordability to try and pick up those numbers a little Bo- bit?
9: Both on the long-term existence and life of carbon pricing in this country and on this government's uh, li- livability, its its lifespan, and, and particularly of that of the Prime Minister. Look, they have brought in the priest to call last rites on Justin Trudeau before. Yeah. It's happened before. Mm-hmm. He miraculously gets out of, uh, out of bed and gets up, and everybody says, it's a political miracle! At least the liberals do. Um, I've seen him down this far before I've seen him come back up before. So, so much of this is tied to how bedeviled this government and this Prime Minister has been by the cost of living crisis. It, they have just been trying to run through wet cement on it. They've done very, very poorly in terms of being a, able to authentically communicate empathy, authentically communicate that they get what Canadians and people in, in those households are going through, what parents are going through, what seniors are going through. Um, so if the cost of living crisis starts to dissipate. If we start to see interest rates coming down, the mortgage pressures, the rental pressures, all of those things that have been causing so much problems, so many problems start to dissipate. That actually creates a massive relief valve for the liberals, but more than that, it takes away from the conservatives the one issue, the very only issue that has moved the needle for the conservatives in eight years. Okay, we've seen them, tied we've seen them up a little bit, down a little bit. We've never seen double-digit leads before. Now, some of that might be the fatigue factor with this government. Lifespan of this cost-of-living crisis. On carbon taxation and pricing, it's... It's, you know, you can start to see different provinces agitating for different carve-outs and, and different things and different people saying, well, I want this and I want that. It will be, it will be interesting to see what happens in British Columbia, which has mm. had its own carbon program for a while, and Quebec. Both of those places are probably likely to stand by what they've had and, and can probably yeah. weather that storm politically. So then this really becomes about other provinces and what happens with them.
0: Tim, final word to you.
4: Yeah, I, I, I think it is a fool's errand to write off Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party. There's a reason they dominated the 20th century and are doing okay in the 21st century. However, I would say the, 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 the time and tiredness is having an impact. If you look at some of our, our data, and Shachi's had some of this as well, the way the liberals are looking at Justin Trudeau is very different than it was eight years ago. And that's not surprising, but when they get to his um, whether he's believable or they view him as inauthentic, and this is some of the stuff that we saw, including with 2021 Liberal voters, and they think he's inauthentic uh, in the 90th percentile, that is not good. Yeah. But two years is a very long yeah. time. Uh, lots of other dynamics could come into play here. Uh, he is not dead. Uh, maybe they're sprinkling the communion oil over him. But but <laughs>
5: uh, is being prayed. Uh,
4: but, but, uh, but he can
0: rise again. Be careful. <laughs> Don't hand out the mass cards just yet. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. Thanks to the power panel. Shashi Curl, Jordan Likness, Tim Powers, and Amanda Olivero. So good to see you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Thank JP. You. Canada's premiers are pushing for a say in housing deals between the federal government and municipalities. Ottawa began offering funding directly to the cities this fall through the Housing Accelerator Fund, part of a plan to fast-track housing developments. Today, the federal government said it won't be slowing down those efforts.
4: If provincial governments want to have more of a say in housing, they have the tools within their own jurisdiction, within their own financial capacity, to offer uh, the same kinds of incentives. But I'm not going to uh, put the brakes on a program that's actually showing results right now. There is no time to waste in a crisis situation. We're going to continue to engage directly with communities. We would welcome the collaboration of the provinces, but in the meantime, we're not going to wait for anyone.
0: I'm joined now by two of Canada's mayors. Cam Guthrie is the mayor of Guelph, Ontario, and Mike Savage is the mayor of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Mayor Savage, I'll start with you. Your premier, Tim Houston, said the Accelerator Fund is bad news. He doesn't want Ottawa dealing directly with cities like yours. What do you say to that?
1: The Housing Accelerator Fund has been extraordinarily good news um, and and a very open and transparent process. And, uh, you know, Minister Fraser has done, I think, a really great job of saying, these are the things that we want to see in terms of density in cities. For cities like our own, it wasn't a big stretch. We were already on the road to uh, most of those things. Um, and the, the other thing about the accelerator, it's a wide open process. It, it was announced in the election of 21. It was put in the budget of 22. We all spent a year wondering, you know, what were the ramifications of it and the, and the criteria. We applied. Uh, uh, I don't know what Guelph did in terms of timing. We applied in June. Minister Fraser came in uh, in the summer and said there's a few things that we'd, we'd like to do. And we said, look, we can do that because we all recognize that we need uh, housing. And particularly we need this mid- missing middle, this uh, kind of hidden density housing within our communities, a city like, like Halifax. What he offered to us initially, what he wanted, didn't quite fit Halifax. So we went to him and said, look, we think we can do better. We think we can build more housing this way. And he said, sure thing. So um, it's, it's been a good it's been a good program. I think it's. I think it's working across the country.
0: Yeah, Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, a mayor, uh, got three. is does not want Sean Fraser tinkering around the edges like this. He doesn't want uh, you know Sean Fraser going to Halifax and saying you need to do this to get some cash. Would you welcome a bilateral deal with the federal government on housing, or would you wait to get the province on board? Is there something to be said for what Doug Ford is saying about jurisdictional creep? Uh,
6: no, uh, the Premier is wrong and uh, there is no time to wait. Uh, We are in a housing crisis and uh, we need to have uh, as much funding as we can from upper levels of government uh, to try to help with the housing crisis. So, you know, as the minister said in the preamble there, if uh, the provinces want to come to the table with their own programs or want to try their own uh, bilateral agreements, or even trilateral agreements with municipalities included, uh, we would definitely be open to that conversation. But there's no time to waste here. We're in a crisis and we need funding to help unlock uh, housing in our communities. And I believe what Minister Fraser is doing is working very well uh, across all of Canada in doing exactly that.
0: I think I saw you quoted saying you'd roll out the red carpet for Minister Fraser. (laughs)
6: I, I would, uh, you know, I I, I, uh, I want to make sure that our city is ready to welcome uh, all people and, and unlock housing, as I said. And so no matter where that money comes from, uh, to try to help with that, I will definitely roll out the red carpet uh, for anyone that wants to do that. You know, one of the things that municipalities has said over and over again is that it, it is a partnership that has to work for everyone to try to deal with this crisis, and uh, so You know, when I hear premiers say things like, well, I don't really want them to get involved in this. It it really is uh, infuriating to me uh, because we don't have any time to waste here. Uh, We need municipalities need funding and we need it as soon as possible. Uh, The burden of the property taxes on people to try to do that alone is uh, not going to work. And that's why we need upper levels of government uh, to help.
0: There, there's a recognition, I think, by the premiers that there is more money needed, Mayor Savage. But they're also saying it's just not a great deal. The, Hello, the accelerator fund isn't fair, they maintain, because Quebec cut a side deal with the feds. They get $900 million up front. Every town and city in that province could potentially get money. Whereas the rest of the country has to go cap and hand to Ottawa and say we need some money. They have to meet their standards. They don't. They can't go through their provincial uh, they can't go through the premiers to get the money. Does she have a point? Is there some unfairness to the program that Quebec got this kind of carve-out in their own pool of money to dole out?
1: Well, JP, as you know, it's not unusual that Quebec has a unique circumstance and often gets carved out of programs across the country. But, you know, whether you go cap-in-hand to the province or cap-in-hand to the feds, is, is is you know, six of one half to the other. I want to be very clear. I would roll out the red carpet for Premier Houston and all the other premiers, to come and talk to us, to put us at the table, to talk about housing, to talk about homelessness. Let's not forget, we're talking about housing, but we have people who are living on the streets of our cities as winter is closing in, and homelessness and programs like the Rapid Housing Initiative, which was a federal initiative, and which the province has supported in Nova Scotia with wraparound supports, which I'm very thankful for. But, you know, we need to sit down and talk about these things. There's no question. I'd be more than happy to have a We've called for some time, as uh, as Cam has said, that we'd like to have a conversation around a table with the federal government, the provincial government, and with first nations governments uh, as well, and talk about what we need for housing in this country. And I think we probably have very similar goals. We just we should just talk more often. But in the meantime, don't don't stop a program that's working.
0: Yeah, Mayor Savage. I mean, this is real for you. I was reading today that there are tent encampments throughout the HRM, throughout the Halifax Regional Municipality. I think there's 30 of them or so now. It does seem untenable to have this sort of situation. Can you just paint a picture for our audience of what the housing crunch is like in your city?
1: Yeah, it's a common story, I think, across the country. I mean, cities large and small are dealing with homelessness. I'm at Halifax City Hall, the historic building here in Halifax. And as I look out the window in the darkness as a cold night approaches, There's probably 20 people living in tents outside um, City Hall. Um, And it's a real problem. Um, And Nova Scotia, uh, it's a provincial responsibility for homelessness, but the city has stepped up. We need more. We need more help. We need it really very, um, very, very quickly. And so, but it goes to the point that we need housing across the spectrum. We need all kinds of housing. Um, And we've been working on that at the city of Halifax for. Close to a decade. We've bought in plans that make housing uh, much, much easier to do. One simple plan that we have is called the center plan, which allows 37,000 units to be built basically as of right and another 24,000 in in other areas. You know, that's housing for 150,000 people. The cost of building... The interest rates, the labor is is slowing that down, but we will all work towards finding housing solutions for people, but we should never ever ever forget <clears throat> the people who need help the most are the people who are facing winter in tents in sheds, in the woods, couch surfing, um, and we and you know we need to find every avenue and we should stop arguing about jurisdiction. Uh, start focusing more and more on the problems of, of people who really need help.
0: Yeah, Mayor Guthrie, it's not, you know, homelessness is not necessarily driven by housing affordability alone, though, is it? We know that addiction, substance abuse, that's a big part of it. That's why a lot of folks end up on the street. What is your city doing to address that challenge? And do you feel like you have a willing partner in the form of Doug Ford in the Progressive Conservative Party at Queen's Park?
6: Well, you know, one of the things, as, uh, as Mike just mentioned, the rapid rehousing funding from the federal government, which has been very successful, uh, it did give a lot of money towards the capital outlay that would be required to build uh, and or renovate a lot of the units that would be required for people that are experiencing homelessness. And it is true that a lot of people, uh, not all, but a lot of people are experiencing homelessness due to mental health and or addictions issues as well. The problem municipalities are facing, especially in Ontario, is that as much as we can be at the table for the capital side of things, building the bricks and mortar of these units, we need the we need the surrounding supports for those people that will be taking those units. We cannot just throw a key at someone and say, Well here's here's a here's a unit for you. These people do need wraparound service. And that is a provincial jurisdiction. That the provincial government, as a healthcare issue, should be providing. And so, the alignment that's coming from the federal government and the municipal government in trying to do the bricks and mortar for these buildings, we are sometimes missing that other alignment from the province to help with the supports and the operating costs to go around that. So, we have many, uh, many units in our city uh, that are looking for more uh, of that operating and supportive costs. And we're hopeful that the province will uh, come to the table as quickly as possible because this is a growing problem, not just for Guelph, uh, but across our country. Uh, You know, just as Mike was saying, looking out his window uh, at homelessness camps, I've got one looking outside of my window right now as well. This is happening everywhere. And so we really need, as Mike said, to have everyone talking more, but also not delaying anything at all. And let's get to the root of these issues and get to get to solving it.
0: Okay, let's leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Cam Guthrie is the mayor of Guelph, Ontario, and Mike Savage, the mayor of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Thanks for joining us tonight.
1: Thank you, guys. Thank you.
0: That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm J.P. Tasker. Thanks for listening.